So this is the part in our history where we really started getting into how to run your own, not so much hop yard, but hop business. Okay. So this next episode is where we first get into pelletizing. Oh, man. Yeah. That'd be almost its own podcast, short run podcast series. Mm -hmm. We talked about that early on about doing a, you know, three or four episode blocks of this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, our, our... our attention and excitement kept on going, hey, hey, squirrel, you know? Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. That's my life. Mm-hmm. But we had spent a lot of time up until this point. This was around episode, th- I want to say 38 or 40. It was something in that realm. And we had we had talked a lot about plants, a lot about the market. And this was when we first started talking about why pellets are so important, why the pelletizing operation is so important. And... And what it even is. I mean, the, one of the first lines in this episode is you explaining that it's the rupturing of lupulin glands. Like mm-hmm. what, what the, the biology is the wrong word, what the manufacturing is behind hot pellets and what you're doing biologically to the cone in order to get the most out of it. And I'm surprised even brewers, when, when I'm teaching, they just like, well, these hot these are pellets are these things in bags. Right. And there's a whole module I go through teaching them about what the pelletizing process is. They're like, holy hell. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. So you ought to treat those pellets a little bit nicer than leaving that expensive $400 bag of proprietary hops half opened in the corner of your brew house. Jeez. You know how we worked on those damn things? Mm-hmm. In a in a clear bag that's just rolled up at the top of the rubber band around yeah, it. Exactly. Rubber band, if you're lucky, it's usually duct tape. A chip clip? I think my Instagram feed is broken, James. It's social media. Don't think about it too much. Yeah, but, you know, I follow lots of hop yards and lots of breweries. Mm -hmm. And the hop yards are starting to slow down. Not a lot of pictures of fields anymore. If you've got a picture of your field and you're in North America and there's still hops on the vine, there are issues. Right. But I scroll through my feed and I, I think I've accidentally been subscribed to a whole bunch of, of smoothie shops and, and Orange Julius and all that, because all I see are things that don't look like beer. Right. I, I would agree with you. It's, it's extremely annoying, and I need it to stop. <laughs> I haven't seen a Kolsch in weeks. It's bothersome. Well, and coming off the heels of the Great American Beer Festival, you look at the list of most popular beers there. And it makes you cry. It, it just, I mean, at least anybody who's reasonable uh, would make them cry. But if you are into the whole slushy, uh, smoothie, orange, dreamsicle mashup, then you would have been like a pig in shit. But for, for those of us who have integrity, <laughs> we, we would have been very upset. I saw something yesterday about an apple cider donut beer, and I just, I... I can't even eat a donut while I'm drinking a beer. They don't belong together. <laughs> this is true. Oh, Very true. So frustrating. What what has happened to my love? I uh, I gave up a long time ago. <laughs> but I will not join them. I will not join them. And, and see, that's the difference between us. I I will take a sip of these things, and sometimes they're fun, but they're. I am more and more on in your camp that they are not beer either. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that Instagram is making you angry. It is making me angry. Stupid social media. It's all those young kids. It all is. those millennials. Damn kids. They're doing it. Crazy kids. 
going to go yell at some of them to get off my lawn now. Awesome. Anyway, anyway. welcome to Hopnology, <laughs> episode number 8,426, mm-hmm. or 34, I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. It's a lot. So we talk, it is a lot, mm-hmm. it is a lot. We've been listening to each other talk for a while now. So we've talked a lot about hops, about the the growing process and the harvesting process and quality, and now you've got you've got a big pile of dry dried flowers. What do you do now? Right. Say so we've we've talked about storing, right, and we've talked about mm-hmm. baling and selling whole flowers, and we've brushed on the topic of pelletizing. But I still think that a lot of people, they look at the act of pelletizing and they they think, number one, they think, why? Why would I do that? And number two, they think that it's out of their reach or because it's, I don't know, either voodoo and black magic or insanely expensive. And that's just not the case. It's also a little sad because you you did all this work and you dried these hop flowers and they're beautiful and they're delicate. And then you go and you smush them. Mm Mm-hmm. So that you know, there's a little bit of, of of sadness there, I think. Well, and I I think that a lot of people look at the act of pelletizing and they say, uh, "Why would I? Why would I destroy my flower? This this act of pelletizing cannot improve quality, and that's also not true." So I think we ought to talk about just the basics of pelletizing and see where it takes us. Uh, I'm sure we could talk, you know, ad nauseum about buying your first pellet mill and what to look for and things like that. But I think we just need to talk about what's happening in the pelletizing process that adds value and why you would want to do it. And I think from a market perspective, why, depending on your size, why there are cases where you you need to do it. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you do it yourself, but correct, you, you do get to a point, a tipping point in your own size of business where the the whole cone doesn't work anymore right agreed so let's talk about this act of pelletizing so start with the technical i suppose like what are you act what are we actually doing here we've got dried eight percent cones <laughs> perfect world scenario right perfect world scenario yep with your and your your cobbler is right there next to you working on your shoes he is. while you've got your perfect yep. cones thank you thanks for that because uh, you will need new shoes by the time you're done so why pelletize? Well, we've talked before about the fact that pelletizing is actually a densifying activity. You're making that light, fluffy pile of flowers into a bunch of tiny little round uh, cylinders. And even some, some keen listening uh, listeners out there have emailed us and commented, you know, James, you're talking about when you're bailing, not to go over seven to one because you can rupture lupulin glands, but yet when you pelletize, you surely are rupturing lupulin glands. Well spotted. Yes, you would be. But here's a massive difference. When we're pelletizing and densifying, yes, we are rupturing lupulin glands, but we are taking a, we're not, we're not taking a whole flower and chucking it in a mill and a pellet mill and magically it comes out to be a cylinder. It gets ground up first into what we call mill powder. And it's not like powder. It's like quarter inch minus. Um, so three, four millimeters, five millimeters. And that is what goes into the 
into the mill to become a dense little cylinder. When we squish that, we're basically squeezing out air. So we're all that light fluffiness in the whole cone, most of that's air. You Very little of that is biomass. We want to get rid of everything that's not biomass. So we want to squish the air out of that and, and densify that hop material. So hopefully, if you've done it right, that you will squish the air out of, and the oxygen therein, out of the inside of that pellet, making it pretty much impervious, not quite, but let's just for sake of argument, impervious to oxygen. And if you do that, that means it's impervious to spoilage. And now you've got a dense pellet, a cylinder where the surface is exposed, could only be exposed to oxygen. And the surface area on a cylinder is pretty efficient. It's one of the least amounts of solids, three-dimensional solids that have a small surface area. So very efficient in terms of what is actually exposed to oxygen and what isn't on the inside of the of the pellet. That act of densifying also takes up a hell of a lot less space. And now you also take something like the flour that was light and fluffy and not easily pourable or manageable in terms of a material handling scenario, and now you've squished it down and made it denser, made it a little bit harder, so it's easy to pour, it's easy to transfer and measure and weigh and things like that. So it really, pelletizing is all about ease of use and and long-term storage. Hmm. That's it. That's the whole thing. You're, you're and it's storage for you, and it's as well as storage for your brewer. Mm-hmm. And there are standard. You know, when we get into the bagging side of things, there are standard packaging sizes and all that. There are industry standards that brewers are used to. And even that home brewers are used to. Correct. But ultimately, they all revolve around the pellet. I was not aware of the geometry side of that, about the surface area ratio. That's very interesting. Was was there ever a time from a hops history perspective where hops were, were still ground up but, but compressed in a different manner? Or has has the pellet always been the thing? There are different forms of, and have been different forms of processed hop material in the past and some of these and certainly in in some parts of europe uh, in eastern europe you'll still find what they call plugs which are sometimes they're ground up flowers very coarsely ground uh, or they're whole cones and they've just literally been smashed inside of a tube so they make this thing that looks like kind of like a small hockey puck hmm. and that that was a way of densifying really it's just you know these things take up too much space Smush them down, and smush them, smush them, smush them, smush them to the point where you can, where you you crush it into a, a hockey puck. The issue there is that that process really doesn't create high enough pressures or dense, dense enough um, solid to squish all the oxygen out. So they they really did kind of fall out of favor because the the chunky material that's left over, once once it sort of breaks apart in the in the wort in the brewing process was not easy to separate and it would clog up filters and heat exchangers and stuff like that. So particle size of the pellet is really important because if you get it just right, then it's super easy to whirlpool separate. So by, by making a whirlpool in the, in the hot tank, 
that you can actually cause all that hop debris to settle out and not clog anything up. So any, any brewers that are looking at efficiency and are large enough to be concerned with that are certainly looking at a whirlpool process and they're going to be asking for pellets. And that's a question that we used to receive very often in our workshops was, you know, we talked about this ad nauseum to your point about um, just cutting down vines, drying or not drying and selling right off the field. And, and, and that'll work to a very limited audience and during a very limited time frame because mm-hmm. you get, you can start counting by the minute right. <laughs> once you chop things down in terms of spoilage. So if you've got any sort of volume, you need to be able to do this. Um, it also plays into the marketing and sales side of things. Uh, we've talked about the fact that you need to make sure when you've got a handshake agreement with a brewer or even a contract for that matter, that you know staging of when they want what. Just because someone wants 500 pounds of, of your crystal this season it doesn't mean they're going to want it all at one time. Right. So the, the, the proper processing and storage, pelletizing and storage are so important to make sure that, um, that your crop is not only great quality when you pull it down, but also great quality months later when you're delivering it. Correct. So let's take a look at how this whole process works. Just sort of very high level, and then we can figure out what makes most sense and uh, to try and demystify it for folks at a high level. And then hopefully the folks that are listening that are interested in this will come back with more questions and we can figure out where we need to dive deeper. So like I said before, the idea here is that we take hop flowers, dried hop flowers, and we grind them up and we squish them into these tight little cylinders. And the industry standard is a six millimeter pellet, six millimeter diameter pellet. They could be anywhere from 20 to 30 millimeters long to, to tiny, to, you know, four or five millimeters. Just depends on how the pellet breaks after it comes out of the mill. There's two types of pellet mills that make these little cylinders. One is called a flat die mill and one is called a ring die mill. And a flat die mill is a scenario has is a machine that has a plate the tool that has holes in it that the hops get squished through is called the die and then the thing that does the squishing of the material is called the roller and there's usually at least two rollers in in every mill setup some of them larger ones have three but the idea here is that you are grinding up hops and to make this mill powder and that mill powder lands inside of this pellet mill on the die, on the plate. Or if it's a... I'm sorry, can we just clarify something here? Sure. That the, the, the milling side happens outside of this, this process with the... Um, the grinding. Yep. With the, with the, with the, yeah, the grinding happens beforehand. Correct. Um, I just want to make sure that's clear, that you, you're already at a powder stage when you get into this part. Correct, yep. And we'll talk, we can talk about hammer milling a little later, but... But that stuff that's falling into the mill or being transferred into the mill is hitting the plate or it's hitting the ring. A ring die, it looks like a giant wedding ring and it spins round and round and round, uh, sort of perpendicular to a flat die mill. We call it flat die because it lays like a plate. And these are, you can search these online, you'll see what they look like. 
but in both scenarios, you've got a spinning die upon which is uh, is landing all of this hop debris, right, that you've just ground up. And it's forming a mat, or sometimes they call it a carpet. And there's a little gap between these rollers and that die. And as this loose material falls down onto the die, onto the plate, and it gets swept underneath that roller, it gets squished. And the more and more material you add on top, the more squishing happens, and the only place for that debris to go is through those holes in the die. And so that's how you're, ba- you're extruding hop, hop debris, <laughs> hop mill powder into cylinders. The big difference between these two types of machines, the ring die and the flat die mill, is that ring die mills have a much higher degree of control in terms of that mat or carpet I talked about and their output. So if you're, a, if you're looking to be a, on the larger side of a hop pelletizing operation, you're going to be looking at a, uh, a ring die mill that's putting out anywhere from three to 400 pounds an hour to 3,000 pounds an hour. You're like, 3,000 pounds? Oh my God, that's ridiculous. Well, if you start contract processing for folks and you're in, a, in an area that has enough production, that becomes a big deal because labor is expensive. And the faster you can get through this, the uh, the better off everybody's going to be. Mm-hmm. The smaller flat die mills, I've seen some say, oh, we can hit 400 pounds per hour. I've never seen a flat die mill hit 400 pounds per hour. Uh, usually they're running up into that 150 to maybe 200 pounds per hour rate. But that's a screaming big machine and running flat out. And, and as you can imagine, just like your harvester and just like your dryer, it takes a little bit of black magic to make these things work right. And so you got to get to know the machine and know what all the settings do and what makes a good pellet versus a bad pellet and how it changes with variety because it does. And what happens if your hops are 11% versus 9%? Does that change the way things process? And the answer is yes. So it takes a it takes a bit of trial and error to sort of find the sweet spot in your machine. And you know, you mentioned different varieties, and it's important to note here that you need to do a full cleaning in between each run. Well, whether it's separate, okay, so it's maybe not a full clean. Well, I mean, that's a good point. How you stage your hops for processing matters. So generally, well, back in the day. Uh, it was all about alpha acids. So you'd start off with your low alpha varieties and work your way up because the next variety that came out of the machine, you wouldn't have to worry about it being overly bitter because the residue that was in there before was was a lower alpha hop. Nowadays, it's a bit different because we're mostly looking at aroma. Alpha is still important, but aroma has a much bigger contribution. So how you choose to stage those hops for processing makes a difference. We would purge in between runs if they were very dissimilar hops. You know, if you were running a crystal and a Mount Hood together or, you know, back to back, I wouldn't really take a big pause to clean anything out. But if I was going to run, say, Centennial and then Columbus, which are vastly different aroma profiles and and alpha levels, then we would run oats through the machine to sort of purge everything out and 
the oat hull acts as a good abrasive and kind of scrubs the the dye on the rollers. And then uh, and then we would start running that next variety. If I recall correctly as well, oats are a good way of, of learning how to use your machine. And making sure the settings are, are, are all correct and the die gap is fine. So the die gap is the gap between the rollers and the die, whether it's a ring die or a, uh, or a flat die. And also, for the love of God, do not leave hops in your machine when you're done because they will turn into concrete. And uh, so we would run at the end of the day or at the end of the, of the run cycle, we would run oats uh, mixed with some mineral oil through there. And it would purge out all the hot debris, but it would also lubricate the dye so that you could then go back later and poke all that, all those oats out of the dye when you're done. But if you leave hot debris in there, you will lock your dye up when that lupulin sets, it will be like cement and you're going to be hating life. Don't do that. We, we joke about needing new shoes from all the, uh, the lupulin, but this is, this is real. No, it, this it, is a significant cleaning issue. It is real. This is, pu- this is punishment for the people on your farm who aren't <laughs> pulling their weight. They get to clean. It, it is, it is ridiculous. Um, but necessary for what I would say, consider long-term viable, hop manuf- hop production uh, is is you you have to if you're not going to do it you got to find somebody else who's going to do it because your market unless you're in a very very niche location your market's not going to sustain a whole leaf operation not at any commercial scale and this to a large degree was part of the the genesis of of gorse valley hops in the sense that we got together and we wanted to grow and when it came time to harvest and we said, oh, well, we've got to get these processed, and there was no one out there who would do it. Right. Back in the day, there was nobody. The only hop processors that there were were out on the west coast of the U.S., and you know they wanted thousands and thousands of pounds before they'd even touch it, which I don't blame them. And it just wasn't, wasn't possible. So that required us to start doing our homework and finding pellet mills that would work for our scenario. And the first place everybody looks, which makes total sense, is wood pelletizers. Because flat dye or ring dye, wood pelletizers, dog food pelletizers, uh, you know, animal feed pelletizers. Yeah, chicken feed I'm seeing right here. Those pellet mills, they all work on the same process. But they're not all built the same. And you have to remember that animal feed has different regulations than human feed and hops are a food product, at least in North America. So that means you need to abide by food processing regulations at the very, very minimum, the FDA regulations, but uh, most States are more stringent than, than the FDA. So how the machine is built, take a look at it from a cleanability standpoint, how, fastidious do you need to be to clean out a wood pelletizing machine (laughs) nobody's going to get sick uh you're not going to ruin any quality from having old stinky lupulin down in crevices nor do you really have to worry about uh like in processing wood fiber uh all the gums and natural adhesives that come in a hop cone i.e lupulin so look for you know nooks and crannies and things like that 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 lupulin could get lodged in that those are 
maintenance points you're going to have to constantly be on top of and cleaning out because if they get bound up, you're going to stop. And when you stop a pelletizing operation, it's never a good thing. You want to set this baby up and get her humming and keep it humming. If you have to start and stop, start and stop, start and stop, you're going to wreck the quality of your hot pellets because they're going to start absorbing a lot of heat out of the system. Because as you can imagine, this creates a lot of friction. And friction is heat. And we know heat and hops is bad. And if you leave those, let's say you're running for an hour, even in a flat die machine, and you stop and there's still hop debris in that die, and you stop for five minutes to clear a jam and you start it up again, pellets that are going to come out of the of the die are going to be brown and waxy and look like Crayola crayons, and they're burnt, they're garbage. And so it's very, very easy to run your mill too hot, too fast, and start bur uh, burning your, your hot pellets. Nobody wants that. And, yeah, you want, you'll want piss off a bunch of brewers if you try and sell them burnt hot pellets. After all the trouble of having gone through doing a rub mm -hmm. and, and then being excited about a particular hop, then you, you hand them pellets where you've destroyed all that hard work. Correct. Yep, I've seen it. I see it all the time. I see it, and certainly with the small-scale growers, that the first place they go is a homebrew shop. And mm -hmm. they package them, and, and they get their little food saver uh, vacuum sealer, and they package up a bunch of yellow-brown hop pellets in clear bags that the pro that the purveyor of your of your homebrew shop then proceeds to put inside a cooler that's directly lit by fluorescent lights. <laughs> I, why just why not just put a turd in a bag at that point? I mean, it's it. Ugh. People, stop it. And yet I, I get it from a marketing perspective. And you ha I mean, if you're going to buy your hops in a completely closed off silver bag that you can't see what you're getting, and then you bring them home and you open them up, well, well then, I mean, that's on you as the, as, the, um, as the manufacturer not to put burnt crap in that bag. Right, and if you do, it's the last time that person's going to buy your hops. So Yes, it is. There's, there's very, it's, the industry is very unforgiving in that, in that regard. Uh, hmm. And, and we talk about all these things that, that matter, um, particle size going into the mill and the die gap between the rollers and the die and how fast you run and what the temperature is and the moisture content and blah, 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 and what day of the week it is and uh, all that kind of stuff. It sounds very intimidating and it's another it's another level of complexity in your operation. But when you get it figured out, now you're doing something that very few other people can do. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it can be spendy to get into, but think about it as a potential profit center for you. It, it, it's got to be. And to your point, you can do contract processing. It, it's something to be aware of. We talk about the cleaning and... Um, you need to be aware of what batch sizes are worthwhile. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do a 50-pound batch from a brand-new grower. It's it's not worth the time or the effort. You'll get almost nothing out the other end. Yeah, and it depends on your machine. So if you have got the very smallest flat die machine that, that runs five or six or seven pounds an hour, yeah, you can run 50-pound batches. Uh, it's going to take you for bloody ever at five pounds an hour, but you can do it. 
if you've got a 300 pound an hour machine, that 50 pounds, eh, probably right on the edge of doable. Because you're like, all right, 300 divided by five, it's only going to take me, you know, a few minutes to run. That's true. But one of the reasons that machine is 300 pounds an hour and not five is the size of the die. And that means there's hop debris, preformed, you know, pre pellets still crammed in that die. And that's what we call people would say, well, how much hops would I give you? And I'll say, well, my die will eat 50 pounds. So that means I could put 50 pounds in the front end and nothing comes out <laughs> to your point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a very, very big machine. That's like a 3000 pound an hour machine. But, but for the smaller machines, I would say, you know, the minimum that I would even consider running would probably be 25 pounds because what's the hassle of cleaning out between runs because the next person's variety you're going to put in there and that's just not the pellet mill it's the grinding and 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 the bagging and all that stuff it's like you want to get rid of all that other person's stuff before you you run the next batch so you have to keep that in consideration as well so some of the things that i think can go wrong in pelletizing would be at the very beginning of the process which is hammer milling and so you're, you're smashing these cones up to get them into a smaller particle size. And a hammer mill, if you don't know what one of those look like, it's basically a, a shaft uh, run by an external motor that has a bunch of swinging metal arms on it. And they call it a hammer mill because that's how it works. It just smashes into the hop cone and shatters it. As opposed to something like a uh, like a meat grinder or something like that, where there's a blade that's sort of doing a shearing action. Uh, that, that's not what we're after. We're we're just looking to smash these these hop cones up and get them to fall through a perforated plate so that everything's relatively sized. And uh, and that's what goes into your into your pellet mill. If if the moisture content's too high, for instance, we could run like up to eleven percent and not see much of a problem. But as soon as you went into 12 to 13% moisture content, that hammer mill just turned into a chewing gum factory. <laughs> they wouldn't shear, they'd tear, and it just, everything got gummed up. So that just little difference in moisture content made a huge difference in throughput. So instead of grinding and hammer milling at 400 pounds an hour, we'd be at 100 with constant clogging that's no fun but that's the reality when you get into contract processing and people are bringing you hops you you say they have to be at eight percent oh these are at eight percent and you don't check them you're now you're you're on the hook there would be times where we would just flat out refuse people would drop off bales sometimes you know we were in wisconsin and they'd come in from colorado you know they'd ship by by freight we'd get them we'd test them and they'd be 14%. In the in the contract that we had, we would have the right to send them back at the owner's expense because they reported them at 8, but they actually turned up at 14. And then they'd say, well, they must have gained moisture on the on the, on the trip, really, in four days, in, in tight, in 200-pound in bales. No, you didn't dry them right. And then you you're like, man, if they're at 14%, you break these bales open, they're all red on the inside. Well, like, that wasn't me. But people love to blame others for their shortcomings. And so as the contract processor, all of a sudden, it's something I did, right? I said, no, I didn't do that. 
you did it, dummy. It's not a panacea, right? It's, it's, you got to be careful and know what you're getting into if you're going to start contract processing because you could have, you know, for every great customer I had, you know, there'd be at least one that was an idiot and everything was my fault and they didn't do anything wrong yet. They, they need you to do the service. It's just very, people are, people suck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I actually said that to you in an email. Mm, yesterday. You did say that in an email <laughs> yesterday. So I don't know. That's what I know. All, all the mechanics and all that are, are very, you know, they're, they're straightforward enough to follow if the people didn't get in the way. Exactly. <sighs> yeah, stupid people. <laughs> not you, not the listeners. We love you. Um, well, except that one. You know who you are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they know. Mm-hmm. They know. A lot of geometry in this one. A lot of geometry. These machines, and we could go through, and I don't know if it's in this episode, probably not, but in another one we could talk about, you know, buying your first pellet mill and all the other ancillary things you're going to need. But let's say you're going to, just as an overview, you're going to start up, a, James, Greg, I want to pelletize. Okay, here are the things you're going to need. So first thing you're going to need is some sort of floor scale because you're going to want to verify what the gross weight of whatever it is you're pelletizing is, whether it's a bale or a bag or a cube or whatever. Yep, I was going to say, and this is this is when lot numbers and tracking becomes so important. Oh yeah, that every every one of those bales, if it's not already logged, then it should be. Now you're double checking the weight, um, the the going in versus the coming out weight, um, and, and that's never mind if you're contract pelletizing for other folks. Then it's twice as important. But even if it's just your own stuff, um, this is where the paperwork will be the beginning and the end of you. Well, and that's part of, certainly in North America, the requirements of your food processing license is being able to show HACCP. I don't know if you guys have ever know what HACCP is. Critical Control Point, Hazardous Action, Critical Control Point Plan. The idea of, I know exactly what lot came from where and how that follows through from the field to the finished package and if i have to do a safety recall because x y and z i know exactly what lots were sold to whom what hops from what batches went into what and have traceability back to the field Mm -hmm. if if you've ever had um a recall for any product i dealt with two recalls here in my house this past week wow Uh, King Arthur Flower did a recall, and then my blood pressure medication did a recall. <laughs> oh, which, right. Which was very interesting. You're going to Which get was cancer. very interesting because, yeah, well, well the recall on that, th- this was amusing, actually said you should call, you should go to your pharmacy and have them reissue the prescription and give them the old one. If it will be a few days before you can get the new one, keep taking the old one because the risk of not taking your medicine is higher than the risk of whatever rat poison went into it in the factory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically what it said. <laughs> my, my point, just that it had a lot number and a expiration date range, and there was a third number on there. It was it, it was a very strict process of here is how you know if you were affected or not. Right, and that's that's the idea behind HACCP. So, all right, scale. The next thing you're gonna need 
is some way to move these flowers into whatever device it is you're grinding your hammer mill. And uh, for most people, when they first start out, it's usually their arms. <laughs> their <laughs> arms and a step stool. It depends on how you've got your system configured, but you're going to have to think about moving material around. Nature's forklift. Nature's forklift, your arms. <laughs> and your arms get very tired after a while, and certainly when you have to start lifting bales to try and to get them moved around. If you're, if you're dealing with, you know, sacks of loosely densified hops, then you can probably pour them and, you know, hit them with a baseball bat and break them up a little bit. But if you're dealing with a bale, something that's been dense, densified, you know, like that seven to one, odds are you're going to need something to break that bale up. And again, that could be you with a pitchfork or a chisel or a pry bar or something. Uh, or you could get a bale breaker, which is just a, a machine that has these slowly rotating arms with, with like spikes on it. It's a very torturous looking machine that just loosely grinds the bale up so that it can flow freely into the hammer mill. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a hammer mill is usually gravity fed to a large degree. So so you are you are having to raise these heavy bales up. You well, and not necessarily. I mean, you could have a conveyor that's going from wherever you're loading your hops up to the hammer mill. I chose to use gravity in all of our systems we designed where the hammer mill sat above the pellet mill because gravity. You want to get the material from the hammer mill into the pellet mill in as short a distance as possible. Because that's where the, the hammer mill is where you're breaking the lupulin gland open, and that's where oxygen can start causing problems. So having the hammer mill above the pellet mill with a straight drop was A, using gravity to our advantage, but B, also the shortest path between breaking those glands open until they were squished tightly into a cylinder. But the hammer mill is, is, the, is the beast. The hammer mill sets the cadence. So getting the hammer mill sized correctly to your pellet mill is important. You don't want it undersized. You don't want to be starving your pellet mill. That's a problem because now you're going to get overheated pellets. And uh, contrary to, to what you might think, running your mill slower and feeding it slower actually causes more heat damage. You want to get those pellets squished and out of there. So we generally would run it quite faster instead of slowing down. But the hammer mill grinds them up. This is where, if you so choose, you could add nitrogen gas, uh, not to cool, but to basically push out oxygen, which is what we did. So we were using nitrogen gas, gas as a blanket to push out as much oxygen as we could so that when we were squishing that pellet, we weren't squishing oxygen inside of it. We were squishing nitrogen, and nitrogen won't cause spoilage. Then you go in your pellet mill. Pellet mill does the squishing, and then it comes out, and the pellet comes out, and the pellets are going to be warm no matter what you do because it's a lot of, a lot of friction in there, and they're, because they're warm and the lupulin is sort of plastic at that point, they're kind of fragile, so there's going to be dust on them. Usually they go through because not all the dust gets, uh, mill powder gets squished. You can add that back to the process, but there's usually some sort of sifter or screen that's there to help separate the, uh, the, 
the mill powder from the finished pellets. And then the pellets can go through a little bit of a cooling cycle uh, to, to firm up a bit before you start handling them. If you handle them heavily right out of the pellet mill, they're going to generally, they like to crumble and break on you. And you'll think that your settings aren't quite right, so you're going to want to go in there and fiddle with them and end up making a pellet that's too dense. you got to let them sort of cure a little bit. And uh, and then they can be packaged. That's it. That's, That's it. it. Sounds simple, right? <laughs> yeah, you pour you pour it in one, and it comes out the other end, like any other biological system. <laughs> yeah, it's super easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can buy these smaller uh, sort of turnkey flat die pelletizing operations for tens of thousands of dollars, tens and tens of thousands of dollars. Um, or you can buy ring die system and sort of put it together yourself, which is what we did and saved a huge amount of money, but also had a much more highly controlled system and, uh, of uh, that would handle much higher volumes. And I'm seeing, you know, of course, Google being our best friend, I'm seeing flat die wood pellet machines mm-hmm. on wheels for four grand. Right. And that's, but that's just the, the pellet the, mill. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's just a pellet mill. Yep. So now you need a hammer mill to go with that. You need a bagger, some sort of conveyance mechanism. So, I mean, that $4,000 flat die pellet mill, if you got a system to break your bales and to grind them up and to cool your pellets, you're probably talking thirty grand, thirty-five grand for a small system. Wood pellet machines, if it says 200 pounds an hour for hops, figure 75. Tough. So do your math. The system that the last system we had that we built did just about 3,000 pounds an hour. But that's not where we started. We started with a small ring die mill. It's a professional mill from California Pellet Mill that would run about 275 an hour. And we ran with that for like five years and it did a great job. But it just would take us much, much too long. To, to process. So we went much bigger, almost an order of magnitude, a little over an order of magnitude, and dramatically cut the cost of our labor. I mean, huge, huge cut to the cost of our labor to get that pellet made. And as we know from talking about every aspect of the farm, that's that seems to be one of those hidden costs where you, you, you never seem to have enough hands. Right. So the more you can automate, the better. Correct. Then. I think that's probably about as much as we can talk in general terms about pelletizing without going down rabbit holes of individual topics uh, that, mm-hmm. that may be a little bit beyond most of our listeners. But certainly if people have questions about pelletizing, I want to hear them. I know I want to demystify it for you so that it becomes a bit more approachable. Because mm-hmm. it is, you know, we, we're talking primarily here to folks that are farmers that are more comfortable out in the out on the land and working on that side of things this is a whole nother side of this business that unfortunately you can't ignore correct all right i feel like this was a sesame street episode that was brought to you by you know the cylinder (laughs) and and the number four probably right on the edge